When you first approach the Bard in Bible, you are a bit uneased. He usually greets you by this point. The warmth of the fire washing over you from the open door and a hail and well-met weary traveler echoing through the stillness. You begin to worry if something may be wrong, but there is still light in the window, and you still hear the clinking of glasses. Upon the door is a note, illuminated letters slightly fading against the weather. Lacking any other recourse, you read it. My dear friends and patrons, I find myself far afield these days, and though my road will eventually wind its way home again, you will not find me behind the bar or at the door for quite a while. Take heart, though, gentle traveler, I have not left you without hearthfire or comfort. I have called upon my friends of the guild. Wandering bards will cease their wandering for a while to find home-tending bar and telling you tales. Now their voices and their stories will be different than what you've come to expect, and we'll all be better for that, I'm sure. Rest, merry adventurer. The Bard and Bible is still your place of refuge. I look forward to hearing all about what has happened while I'm gone. Until then. It's signed, Mike Perna, your not-so-resident dwarf bard. I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children. And another fig was a famous poet, and another fig a brilliant professor. And another fig was E.G., the amazing editor. And another fig was Europe and Africa and South America. And another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest, and as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. Oh, sorry, good morning. I had the bar to myself, so I decided to take the opportunity to read a bit. Important work of fiction. Incredibly clever, but probably one of the most depressing books of the 20th century. Ugh. But not possibly quite as depressing as you look right now. Rough night? You look like you could use some coffee. Or hair of the dog. Oh, forgive me. You're right to be hesitant taking beverages from strangers. My name's Ashley, and I'm probably not the innkeeper you're looking for. You wouldn't have seen me. I got in really early this morning. Your innkeeper's a friend, and asked that I take on a shift while passing through. And really, who could say no to sitting a spell in such a great place such as this? So please, Make yourself at home. I'm just getting settled in myself. <sighs> I 
really love mornings. I honestly really love mornings because, in general, I've just always loved the beginnings of things. When Bilbo meets the dwarves in The Hobbit, when Harry sees Hogwarts for the first time in The Sorcerer's Stone, the first time the Baudelaire's learn about VFD, a brand new notebook, the first rehearsal, a new character sheet. And while I love beginnings, I hate endings. I'm bad at them. I am the queen of the Irish goodbye. Unless it's particularly bad prose, I will let a bookmark sit on the last page for a month before I get myself to say farewell to those characters. I will rock a project binder, color-coded dividers and everything, and then stop using it halfway through completion. Love the journey. Hate the arrival. But ultimately, I'm realizing goodbyes and arrivals are inevitable. My husband and I are on the cusp of saying goodbye to everything we know and love, and we're moving overseas. The process of packing and tie-cutting is exhausting. I have been having to resist the urge to just ghost everyone I know and re-enter society in four to five years. Part of it is this insistence that I'll keep in touch. It's, it's just, it's too much. It's the same reason I hated yearbooks. Keep in touch. Don't change. When the truth is, probably our sole source of interaction will be status likes, and I'll inevitably change into somebody far more insufferable to you than I currently am. <laughs> the other reason I hate endings is because they feel like impact rather than smooth landing. When I was in seminary, I was on scholarship which required me to have a meeting with the seminary president once a year. And I honestly really enjoyed these meetings because, one, Dr. Brown is Scottish, and every conversation felt like a call to arms. And two, because he and I both felt like fish out of water, and we could be honest with one another about that. During one of these conversations, he asked me what I thought I might go on and do after seminary. I didn't like that question. <laughs> I stutter-stopped in my response several times because, honestly, I was in denial about graduation. Being in the process of discernment felt a hell of a lot safer than having discerned. I was also at a crossroads as to which Christian community I felt supported my call to ministry most. I admitted that I was still muddling through a lot of it, and I felt pretty stuck. Then he told me a story. One afternoon, Dr. Brown, and at this point I'll be familiar and call him Alistair because it's shorter, went hiking up a mountain, because that's what you do when you're Scottish and you live near mountains. On the way up, the weather was clear and sunny. It was idyllic trekking weather. You couldn't have picked a better day. Once he reached the top, however, that perfect weather turned to your standard Scottish fare. Fog as thick as chowder. At home, fog can be scenic. On the road, it's a nuisance. Descending a mountain hike containing switchbacks? Potentially deadly. Understandably, though, Alistair became quite nervous. Sundown was coming, and if he didn't move forward soon, he would be stuck up there with no food, minimal water, and no form of communication. He started to move forward slowly, trying to get his footing, and just off in the distance, he spotted a cairn. 
For anyone who doesn't know, a cairn is a pile of stones to mark an increment of a hike. It's a mile marker of sorts. And he felt emboldened by this sight of this marker and slowly, carefully made his way toward it. Once he reached it, he saw the next one up ahead, just slightly obscured by fog. To reach it, he'd have to leave his current place of certainty, the one he just so painstakingly arrived at. And on his descent went, until, finally, his feet hit level soil again. And he told me, sometimes we have to take things one cairn at a time. You might not be certain of the path, but you need to step out in faithfulness to go toward what's been revealed to you. And that's what that cairn reminded me. I couldn't see the one just past it, but I saw the one directly ahead. And if I took careful steps, I knew I would make it. I think about that story a lot when I'm coming up on a nerve-wracking transition. Not only does it help to look forward, but I have to remind myself to look to the past, back to all the other marks of God's faithfulness that I've encountered up to this point. And it makes me think of the word Ebenezer. Ebenezer is a compound Hebrew word, eben or stone, and ezer meaning help. So Ebenezer, or if you've probably heard in other stories, if you're thinking of Ebenezer Scrooge, Ebenezer, it means stone of help, quite literally. We see this word or name in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, first, as the placement for a battle camp Israel had set up against the Philistines. And the Israelites battle the Philistines a few times. And each time, the Philistines win. In the last instance, in fact, they decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them, thinking it would boost their odds. And just for anyone who might be unfamiliar, the Ark is a representation of Yahweh, God's presence with the Israelites. It is said to contain two stone tablets given to Moses containing the law. and It had been constructed to fulfill the need the Israelites had for some physical representation of God that they could commune with. But despite this provision, they had been turning to pagan worship anyway, worshiping Canaanite gods Baal and Ashtoreth. And these are gods of fertility and plenty, things that God had been providing them with already, but they decided to go to other sources. So really, they were being careless and impulsive with their sacred objects. And this comes to bite them. The Philistines capture the Ark, and they take it to Ashdod. And they don't just take it, right? That, that's embarrassing enough. That is disheartening enough. They take it and they place it right next to their own god, Dagon. Dagon, who is their fish god. And it sits there for seven months. The reason that they only make it seven months is because a series of events start to occur. After the first night that they have the ark, they wake up to find the idol of Dagon fallen face forward before the ark. And you think that this would be a sign, right? But they don't really think much of it. They replace it. They put it back where it was. And then the next morning, they find Dagon face forward again in front of the Ark. Only this time, it's a little more dramatic. 
they find him with his head and both hands cut off. After this, the people are plagued with tumors, and both the young and the old begin to die, and there is mass panic, which feels like a pretty natural and reasonable reaction when your people are dying. So the lords of the Philistines to get, get together, and they decide to return the ark, and they justify it because you can never admit to cowardice when you're in the middle of a war. They justify it by saying, well, why should we end up like the Egyptians? So they get two of their own milking cows, and they yoke them to the ark, and they say, okay, if these cows go straight to Bet Shemesh on their own, then we'll know that this was Yahweh's doing, that the Israelites, you know, their God did this to us because we took it. But if it, they wander from the path and they don't make it to Bet Shemesh, then this whole thing was entirely a coincidence. Now, this is the part of the story that doesn't work well without a map. So if you're able, try to find one, because I need you to visualize this with me. Bet Shemesh is roughly 30 miles away from Ashdod. Have you ever met a cow? Milking cows are actually pretty smart, but their intelligence comes from their socialization. They stick together and they protect one another. They even remember the handlers that have been gentle as opposed to those who have been rough with them. My grandfather used to tell me that you were particularly lucky if you could get a cow to eat from your hand. He was always pretty lucky. But ultimately, cows don't do well in isolation. And they certainly don't do well on 30-mile hikes. But wouldn't you know it? Instead of turning around and going back to a place of familiarity and food, those cows made a straight beeline all the way to Israel. Because what is God's will always return to him. So to make a long story short, Samuel judges the Israelites, he gets them to rid themselves of their idolatrous worship, they fast, and Samuel prays for them on their behalf, and the Philistines see this, and start to panic again. Because nothing is more terrifying than seeing your rival get their groove back. And just as they come up to attack, Yahweh is described as having thundered with a mighty sound, to the extent that it startles the Philistines and reroutes them back into the path of the Israelite army. And they win, and the Philistines stop invading. And instead of celebrating by honoring the army or the might of Israel as a nation, Samuel takes the time to honor God. He builds a monument to memorialize the help that they had received from the Lord. He names it Ebenezer, Stone of Help. It memorializes a time when God's faithfulness and his people's faithfulness were in sync. Their external circumstances reflected their internal devotion. Ebenezer memorializes, as Eugene Peterson says, a moment that can only be described by the prayer, Thy kingdom come. I wonder what it would be like if we made it a point to take the time to memorialize God's provision. I know some who do, in their own way. I have a friend who said her tattoos were her Ebenezer's. Each one represented how God interceded on her behalf throughout her life. 
I thought that was awesome when I heard it. And unfortunately, I am just not cool enough to pull off tattoos, and I am much too fickle to commit to a design. Some keep journals of answered prayer. For anyone who's graduated from a religious studies program, I think together we could build a library to rival Harvard's and then still not have enough room for all of the journals we've received as gifts. No, I really like imagining Christians going out and actually building small markers in places they've encountered God. I bet we'd be tripping all over them. When I think of this story, another one comes to mind, and it's honestly, it's in direct contrast. I think of the monument that became Lot's wife. She can be found seven books back in Genesis. Lot's wife has no name, and she has no specific features. Her only defining characteristic is her reluctance. She gets one verse, chapter 19, verse 26. She was called out of a place of familiarity, comfort, and entertainment into a place of uncertainty and faithfulness. And actually, her family was given every bit of guidance on their way out by the two angels warning them of the impending destruction of Sodom. But instead of keeping to the horizon, toward Yahweh's provision and constancy, she concentrated on what she was losing. And, you know, I, I find that she turned to salt really interesting. Not just because it sounds like something that would happen in the middle of a D&D campaign. I find it interesting because salt was an incredibly important commodity in that time. It wasn't just seasoning. It was a preservative, and it was medicinal. It was an element of worship. If poured on soil, it contaminates it, and the lands become barren. So what was God doing? Is he making a statement by turning her into something useful? Or is he salting the earth behind her family? It's, it's tempting to be Lot's wife. Personally, it takes me a long time to invest in new community. And when I finally do, though, my roots drive deep and down. I hunker. There is no moving me. So when God comes calling, and he does, well, let's just say it's a battle of wills akin to Jacob's wrestling match. But my life has been nothing if not peripatetic, and I have a feeling that it's meant to keep my soul limber. So the challenge for me, and maybe for you too, is to, when I do look back, because I inevitably will look back, to do so in a moment of gratitude, not regret. To see the Ebenezer, and not a pillar of salt. And I pray that that Ebenezer urges me ever forward to the next one, and the next one, and the next after that, never straying from my path until I make my way home. I've been rambling on for a minute now. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll let you get on with your day. Um, just let me pray for you before you do. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, whose glory fills the whole creation 
in whose presence we find wherever we go. Preserve those who travel, regardless of what portion of their journey they're on. Surround them with your loving care, protect them from every danger, and bring them in safety to their journey's end. Help them to take failure not as a measure of their worth, but as a chance for a new start. Give them strength to hold their faith in you and keep alive their joy in you through Christ our Lord. Amen.